खिलाफत के अमी हम हैं अमानत हम संभालेंगे जो नेमत छिन वी बिलीव इन इक्वेलिटी ऑफ ह्यूमन बीइंग्स इन द रूल ऑफ लॉ एंड वी आर अगेंस्ट ऑल टाइप्स ऑफ ऑपरेशन वेलकम टू द एमकेए यूएसए वाइब रन बाय मजलिस खुदामल अहमदिया यूएसए America's oldest and largest Muslim male youth organization. We're here to share a weekly recap of the latest in Friday sermons, speeches, lessons from our respected imams and wisdom from different sources. Khalifa ke labon se jo gulo jo har bikharte hain اعوذ باللہ من الشیطان الرجیم بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم اللهم صلی علی محمد و علی محمد كما صليت علی ابراہیم و علی ابراہیم انک حمید مجید اللهم بارك علی محمد و علی محمد كما بارکت علی ابراہیم و علی ابراہیم انک حمید مجید Presently we're covering the time after the boycott that was imposed on the Muslims in the Meccan period And after the end of the boycott, it is narrated that the demise of Hazrat Khadija and Hazrat Abu Talib took place. Now, on the subject of the demise of Hazrat Abu Talib, there is a disagreement among narrations and among historians. And the prevailing viewpoint among historians is that Hazrat Abu Talib died as an idolater, that the Holy Prophet invited him to Islam on his deathbed. But despite that, Hazrat Abu Talib said that I die on the religion of my father Abdul Muttalib and that he left this world as an idolater. And also there are a hadith that in Rivayat are considerably authentic that are found in the Sihai Sitta where the Holy Prophet is narrated to have said that Abu Talib is in a part of hell where he is up to his ankles in the punishment. So this is a prevailing viewpoint that is generally adhered to. However, Hazrat Khalifa Rabi Rahimahullah, Hazrat Khalifa Al-Masih Rabi Rahimahullah explained that the sacrifices that Hazrat Abu Talib did throughout his life stand as a testimony to the fact that he must have been a believer because a person cannot offer such sacrifices without having believed. Then also we find that there is a narration, although in the weaker books of history, but there is a narration that says that in the end Hazrat Abu Talib accepted Islam. So when we take this weak narration and combine it with the general consensus on the seerah and the character of Hazrat Abu Talib then it gives a stronger evidence to the fact that he was among the believers. And so this is more likely the more correct viewpoint. However, even if the other viewpoint is accepted as being true, it teaches us a lesson, which is that our actions cannot forcefully get us into paradise. It is obedience that gets us into paradise. If a person is disobedient to Allah Almighty, and still um, does good deeds according to his own definition, then that person is responsible and accountable for that disobedience. This is the same principle that Hazrat Masimah explained when people asked him that we feel fit and healthy enough to observe fasting while we are traveling and while we are sick. So the Promised Messiah explained that when Allah Almighty has given this ease and when we are not to fast, when we are traveling and when we are uh, sick, and we cannot forcefully please Allah Almighty. The earning the pleasure of Allah Almighty comes in giving up our own will and submitting to Him. 
So this also applies to accepting the true religion. That when a religion has come from Allah Almighty, then it must be accepted as true. Now, the punishment of the hereafter is something that is a consequence of spiritual illness. This is something that we have to remember on the philosophy of punishment. Uh, so a person can be a nice person. He can be a great neighbor. He can be a good person overall. But if he neglects his physical health, then he's going to suffer. If a person just eats sweets all day, then no matter how nice of a guy he is, he's going to end up with failed kidneys and on dialysis and with gangrene on his limbs, with amputation, he's going to be in a physical hell. There's no amount of nice guy that's going to save him from the physical consequences of his physically irresponsible behavior. So this also applies with our spiritual health. When a person neglects his spiritual health and disobeys Allah Almighty, then despite his being a nice person overall, that disobedience is something that results in a spiritual illness, which entails suffering. And that is essentially what the hell is that Islam describes. So what we learn from this story of Hazrat Abu Talib, even if we accept that view which is prevalent among Muslims, is that ultimately disobedience to Allah Almighty is something that is a rebellion against God Almighty. And good deeds done while maintaining rebellion against God Almighty and disobedience of Him is something that carries its consequences. Now this is a historical point, but still for our general knowledge it's important to know as we go over it during, throughout, as we go through the biography of the Holy Prophet wasallam, and that we consider the more correct approach to more likely be the fact that he was among the Sahaba anhum. And after this it is narrated that as we know with the demise of Hazrat Khadija anha, the question arose as to the marriage of the Holy Prophet wasallam. And on this, Hazrat Mirza Bashir Ahmed in his uh, book, uh, Sira Khatamun Nabiyyin, um, describes that in Islam, the teaching is that marriage is something that is the practice of the Holy Prophet and so it is the responsibility of Muslims to adhere to this practice. There is a hadith wherein the Prophet said that, Anlikahu min sunnati, famallam yamal bi sunnati falaysa minni, that to marry is a part of my sunnah. And he who does not follow my sunnah is not from among me. Now, this point carries a couple of lessons for us, not only on the subject of marriage, but also on the subject of things being permissible and things being forbidden. Now, there are areas where in society and for cultural reasons, people begin to consider marriage as being a, a lower form of righteousness. You know, as we know among Christians and other religions, people consider celibacy to be an act and a sign of righteousness. This is something that Islam has rejected, and as we know, this is not something that we as Muslims ever struggle with because Islam has made the point abundantly clear. But still, within culture, there are some areas where people consider it more honorable and more righteous to not get married. One obvious example of this is with the marriage of widows. When, uh, when a man dies and leaves behind a wife, then in many cultures it is considered wrong, a dishonor to the husband, a dishonor to the family, and a dishonor for the widow to get married again. And this is something that Islam has rejected. Even if there was no teaching in the Quran or a hadith on the subject of widows, the example of the Holy Prophet ﷺ is sufficient in encouraging the importance of marrying widows. Because we see that after Hazrat Khadija, he married many times. And of all of his wives, only one was an unmarried woman who was Hazrat Aisha, and one was a divorced woman who was Hazrat Zainab. The rest, including Hazrat Khadija, were all widows. So this example is sufficient for us. But on top of this, we have the Qur'an and then a hadith that teach the importance of marrying widows. So any culture or any social ideal that has been invented by people which places any kind of dishonor 
or a stigma or emotional blackmail on getting married as a widow or on the marrying of widows is something that goes against the teachings of Islam. Now on the subject of marriage again comes the subject of polygamy. This is something that Islam has taught. Now in, in, as a principle it is something that is taught. But when it is misused of course it is something that is discouraged. And there are many people who are averse to polygamy in principle. Now, there are places where the, our Hazrat Basima and our Khulafa have discouraged polygamy. But there it is to the misuse of polygamy that many people unfortunately misuse it. And sometimes people, they take only that aspect of it. And then when you dig a little bit further, you find that they actually have a fundamental aversion to polygamy. Now, if a person is averse to the misuse of polygamy and argues against it, that's perfectly fine. But when a person is, when we find that we are fundamentally averse to the concept, we think that polygamy in principle is wrong, that goes against the teachings of Islam. Now we are going against a principle that Islam has actually taught. So whenever Islam has taught something, if we find that for cultural or whatever reasons we find ourselves averse to it, when we find out somebody has practiced polygamy, immediately we start questioning their character and their intentions, that's where it's gone in the wrong direction. Now to give a couple other examples on this, there are things that Islam has permitted and in fact encouraged that sometimes as a fad in society people can make haram on themselves. For example, there's a fad of becoming vegetarian and vegan. Now there are many reasons people do this. There is one reason where people consider it morally objectionable to kill an animal. You know, some vegans, or we can call them the more extreme type of vegans and vegetarians, they consider it morally reprehensible because animal life is sacred. And one of the ways that they protest the killing of animals and promote their idea of being a vegan is by you know, displaying themselves as human beings wrapped in packaging that's usually done for meat to show that to kill a human being and to kill an animal is on the same level. That's something that obviously Islam rejects. When the Holy Quran has taught us that lakum, that we have subjugated to you the heavens and the earth, all the different things in the earth, they are there for us, for us to use. And when the Holy Quran has declared not only vegetables but meat as being halal and tayyibah, not only permissible but pure for us, that to invent our own moral ideals by which we consider something that is permitted in Islam and encouraged to now be morally wrong, that's something in principle that goes against the teachings of Islam. However, there can always be exceptions. For example, a person can have a personal preference by which they just don't like eating meat. A person, as long as as a Muslim we believe, we understand that the teachings of Islam are correct and pure, that the eating of animals, that the using of animals, the killing of animals for a superior species, for us who are at the top of the food chain, that is something that is good, but I just personally dislike eating animal. That's something that's fine. It's just a personal preference. In the same way, coming back to the previous subjects, if a widow just personally prefers not to get married again, she understands that it is good to do so, it is encouraged to do so, but for personal reasons, then there's nothing objectionable about it. There are many women who were great and holy women among the Sahaba, from the family of the Promised Messiah, who after their husbands died, they chose and they preferred not to. It could have been because of age or for any other personal reason. So those women did not abstain from marrying again as widows because they considered culturally wrong or a greater source of honor. They just had a personal reason for it. So to personally adopt something while accepting and understanding the teachings of Islam, that is what is the correct approach. That is what is right. But when we consider something that Islam has taught to be incorrect and go against it, and create a new social ideal by which we consider that teaching to be a taboo, that's where the line is crossed. So this uh, subject of marriage that has been described here in this hadith of that marriage is um, a part of my sunnah and he who does not follow my sunnah is not from among me, 
it teaches us a principle, and that principle has application in many different aspects of life, and it is something that we can learn from. The last point that I'll cover is with the marriage of Hazrat Aisha anha, it is narrated that the Holy Prophet وسلم, saw in a dream that Hazrat Jibreel came before him and presented him with a green silk handkerchief and said that this is your wife in this world and the hereafter. When the Holy <coughs> Prophet وسلم, looked at the handkerchief, upon it was the picture of Hazrat Aisha, anha, the daughter of Hazrat Abu Bakr. Anhu. Now this <coughs> hadith or this um, statement of Hazrat Jibreel is something for us to reflect on because this is the ideal marriage. This is a marriage that is guided by revelation. And what was revealed to the Prophet وسلم, is something that can only be revealed through revelation. Any of us can find a wife in this world, but none of us can find a wife who is not only our spouse in this world, but our spouse in the hereafter as well. And this shows us the importance of istikhara before marriage, because it is within all of our capacity to find a spouse in this world. But how many people find a spouse who will actually be their spouse in the hereafter, who will be that person who is from among the azwajum mutahara, the pure spouses of the hereafter. There are many people who, if they were told that you will have to spend an eternity with your wife or with your husband, then that would no longer be paradise, it would be hell, because it is something that is the most torturous and uh, averse thing to them. So for to find the correct wife doesn't just require a affinity in the physical realm, but a spiritual affinity. And that is the true ideal and the true concept of a good match that Islam has taught. So this hadith is just sufficient that when we are looking for a spouse ourselves or when we are looking for a spouse for someone else, if we keep this ideal in mind, just as an ideal, that we are looking and our objective is to find a spouse for this person, not only in this life, but in the paradise as well in the hereafter, then our standards would very quickly change. Those things that we focus on that are trivial and temporary, they would become irrelevant because those things don't matter when a person even reaches old age in this life, let alone in the next world. Those things that begin to fade and disappear within a decade or two decades of marriage, and by the time that couple is in their 50s, they become irrelevant, are sometimes the most important thing when a person is looking for a spouse. But what Islam teaches is don't just think about what's going to be important when you're in your 50s and 60s. Think about does, do you, is this person going to be your spouse in the hereafter? And when we think from that perspective, then we don't have to force that hadith onto ourselves that, yes, a person looks for appearance and for wealth and for family, but you don't have to ignore those things but give preference to righteousness. It no longer becomes a hadith we force on ourselves that, okay, I have to force myself to look for righteousness. When our standard is to look for a spouse in the hereafter, then it comes naturally. So this hadith of the Holy Prophet وسلم, and that perfect marriage that he found in Hazrat Aisha anha, that perfect affinity they had in this world and in the hereafter is an ideal for us and a goal for us to strive for. So with that, we'll end the daris and inshallah we'll continue next time. Uh, so we'll end here. Allahumma salli ala Muhammadin wa ala Ali Muhammad wa barik wa sallim inna ka hamidun majeed. Khalifa ke se jo gulo You've been listening to the MKA Vibe by Majlis Qudamal Ahmadiyya USA, America's oldest and largest Muslim male youth organization. Subscribe to get more of our weekly recap of the latest in Friday sermons, speeches, lessons from our respected Imams and wisdom from different sources. Tweet us your ideas and thoughts at Muslim Youth USA.